0: When I was a sophomore in high school, I became friends with the pastor and his wife of a small, fundamentalist Bible church down the street and around the corner from where I lived. This was a church that held its members to a very high standard of moral behavior. It banned alcohol, tobacco, card playing, gambling, dancing, and going to movie theaters. They also frowned on chewing gum. I thought their motto should have been, we don't drink, smoke, or chew, and we don't go with the girls that do. We had many discussions about faith, though I realized early on that they were hoping to convert me to theirs. Obviously, that strategy failed in a big way. I have something of a contrary nature. It comes from the Irish side of my family, so I'd like to point out to them that While Jesus never smoked, gambled, or went to movies, he did turn water into wine at a wedding. We're not talking about a quart bottle of Mad Dog 2020. Uh, This is a lot of wine, between 120 and 180 gallons of the stuff. My friends always responded that it was new wine, and so it... It didn't have time to ferment. It was, in other words, grape juice. Obviously, they had never shared a bottle of Beaujolais Nouveau with a 12.5 alcohol content. I come to think of it, neither had I. I was only 16, and Beaujolais was still in my future. I have come to discover that apart from Beaujolais, wine improves with age, and the older I get, the more I like it. That admission would probably not earn my friend's approval. And I'm sure they would not, I'm not sure what they would make of the, this passage in the Gospel of John where the Lord Jesus compares himself to a vine, because the vine he is talking about is not a tomato vine, but a grape vine. So why the odd comparison? If we were living in first century Jerusalem, rather than 21st century Chicago, the answer would be immediately clear. The grapevine was one of the prominent symbols of Israel itself. Every Jew who ever went into the temple, including Jesus himself, knew that because according to Josephus, the facade of the holy place was decorated with a great golden vine hung with clusters of golden grapes. This vine was so famous that even the Roman historian Tacitus, himself a pagan, wrote about it in his Histories, in book five. What was seen on the temple of the uh, the facade of the temple could be read in S- Israel's scriptures. So we get, for example, Psalm eighty. You brought a vine out of Egypt to plant it, you drove out the nations, it took root and filled the land, the mountains were covered with its shadow. And if there was anyone in Israel who didn't get the message, Isaiah put it bluntly in chapter 5, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So the image of a grapevine was part of the social and religious culture that Jesus grew up in. And just as the use of fermented wine was an essential part of the Jewish Passover liturgy, Just and just as Jesus took the blessing over the third cup of wine at the Last Supper and gave it an entirely new significance, so too in this passage from John's Gospel, the grapevine... The image of Israel's own identity undergoes an unexpected shift in meaning at the hands of Jesus. God's vineyard is no longer defined by geographical boundaries, but by Christ Himself. He is the one true vine, and faithfulness to Israel's covenant, God, means being grafted into Him. In effect, the Lord Jesus was radically redefining the story of Israel the law, the temple, and her scriptures in himself. And in doing that, he gave them a completely new meaning, which basically amounts to Jesus saying that God's plan for the salvation of the human race, of the whole cosmos, has reached its ultimate fulfillment in him. He is the messianic king that the chosen people have been waiting for. But his kingly reign would look very different from what anyone in Israel at the time could possibly have imagined. He would reign as the son of David, but a crucified son and his throne would be a cross. This Sunday's gospel passage about who Jesus is about who Jesus really is, but in, in a sense, it is also about who we really are if we claim him as our king. One of the curious things about the Easter liturgy that I have reflected on for many years now, is that after the third Sunday of Easter, we no longer hear the accounts about the risen Christ and its appearances to the disciples. Instead, we go back to the dense passages in John's Gospel between chapters 10 and 17 that take place during and after the Last Supper on Holy Thursday night, but before the hours before Jesus is arrested. The Easter liturgy uses these passages to reveal to the baptized who we are in relation to Jesus Christ, and that relation was forged in the Easter sacraments when we were baptized into Christ's death and rose to new life with him. The point is that Catholics, and in fact all baptized Christians, live on a different ontological level a different level of being, a supernatural way of living, and being in communion in which our lives are grafted into the life of Christ. But in the course of the year we all tend to forget this. That is why we spend 40 days of Lent remembering our baptism and that we have been grafted into this new life. And then Another 50 days in the Easter season, learning how to live it all over again.